Hi, gang. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I'm your host. Today, that funny girl from Brooklyn. Barbara Streisand turned 74 later this month. You might expect her to be older since she's been such a huge cultural figure for so long. It's been decades since she first made her mark on the silver screen on Broadway in nightclubs and on record charts. I cried over you. But Streisand's success was by no means a foregone conclusion. Her beginnings were humble, and every success and achievement felt hard won. After all, she was a young Jewish woman with a thick Brooklyn accent, atypical Hollywood looks, and a so-called kooky personality when she first started out. What were her struggles? What was the source of her broad appeal? Writer Neil Gabler tackles those questions and more in Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. The book is out now from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast. And we welcome Neil into the studio today to talk to us about it. Neil Gabler, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. You're a film critic. You've written books on Walt Disney, on Jews in Hollywood. Did you first come to Barbara Streisand via her films, her music? How did you get to her? Well, I think everybody hears her music. Um, and I was not, I have to say, I was not a huge fan of Barbara Streisand's music. Uh, I'm more of a Frank Sinatra guy. You know, much more laid back, much cooler. Barbara Streisand is not cool. Uh, she herself talks about how she was geschreying, you know, kind of over-emoting, to use that the, the Yiddish term for it. Um, I liked her films, and I still like her films better than I like her music. Um, but, I, but I really came to write this book because of her position in the culture. I mean, yes, she's an enormous talent, and everybody recognizes that. But there are many, many talented people, not necessarily as talented as Barbara Streisand, but talented. But, but there are very, very few entertainers, no matter how talented they are, who occupy the position in the culture that Barbara Streisand occupies. Is that what compelled you to, to take on this project? I mean, tell us more about that. Yeah, that is what compelled me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a Jewish Live series. Uh, but some people are Jewish, and they're kind of incidentally Jewish. They are great talents who happen to be Jewish. First of all, Barbara Streisand is not a great talent who happens to be Jewish. She's a great Jewish talent. And, and the Jewishness is absolutely intrinsic to who she is and to the persona she has. But the real draw for me was that here was an opportunity to write about a figure who is quintessentially Jewish and who used that Jewishness to influence the culture in profound ways. I mean, the subtitle of the book I take very seriously, which is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. That's precisely what Barbara Streisand did. That's a quite a big ticket for an entertainer to carry. And as I said earlier, there are very few entertainers who can carry freight that large. So do you think in some ways, because she was Jewish and had these very... Uh distinct features. I mean, she had this nose that was was not yeah. A-line. <laughs> you know, she did her makeup in a sort of exotic mode, invoking Cleopatra and so forth, that she made it okay to be Jewish and for Jewishness to be beautiful? Oh, she absolutely did that. I don't think there's any question that Barbara Streisand kind of mainstreamed Jewishness. But she did something else. You know, the the, the kind of whole metaphor for life is her Jewishness. And what I mean by, by saying it's the metaphor for life is... Jewishness was her otherness. 
And it was the reason why she had such a difficult time initially making it into show business. How many times was Barbara Streisand told by her own mother, in fact, you are too ugly to make it as a performer. But what Streisand did brilliantly, and sometimes self-consciously, and it's sometimes not, is to take the metaphor of her Jewishness and to universalize it into the metaphor of otherness. And, and there is no Barbara Streisand, not as we know her, unless there, there is that sense of otherness. She's different from any performer who preceded her in the history of show business. Before we get more into that, I want to take a step back. I'm sure there are some listeners who actually don't have any idea about her background. And can you give us a sort of nutshell biography? Where did she come from? What was her family situation? What was her life like before she made it big? It wasn't a particularly happy childhood. She was born in Brooklyn, as one might expect when you hear that voice. I mean, that's a Brooklyn voice, not just a Jewish voice, but a Jewish Brooklyn voice. Uh, In 1942, uh, about four months after uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, her father died when she was 15 months old. He was a school teacher who was on his way to getting his Ph.D. Uh, that left his, her, her mother not only bereft, but also having to go out and find a job. She lived with her grandparents for a time. Uh, her, her mother remarried a man who was the most inappropriately named human being imaginable. It's almost a Dickensian name. His name was Louis Kind, <laughs> and Kind was the last thing he was. Uh, he was so cruel and abusive to Barbara, calling her ugly, repeatedly. And what was worse for Barbara is that he and Barbara's mother had a child of their own whom he regarded as beautiful. Uh, Some people may remember her as Rosalind, uh, Rosalind Kind, who became a singer in her own right, kind of imitator of Barbara Streisand, clearly not uh, nowhere near as famous or as talented as Barbara Streisand. So she lived a very difficult childhood. And, And part of the way that she she saw her herself going forward in that childhood was she was determined from the time she was a little girl that she was going to be a star, a movie star. She didn't care about music. Music was incidental to her, but she was going to be a movie star. And she was determined she was going to be a movie star. Did you have any sense of what were the movies that most inspired her as a kid? What did she go to see that, that so excited her? She went to see a lot of things. I One, th- one of the films that she talks about explicitly is Gone with the Wind and seeing you know Vivian Lee on screen. Uh, but she was, she was an inveterate young moviegoer uh, who, who, by her own admission, said she would project herself into the, the movies. But she also, by her own admission, said, I wasn't only projecting myself into the scenario on screen, but I was projecting myself into the actress. That is, I was not only projecting myself into Scarlett O'Hara, I was projecting myself into Vivian Lee. I was going to be that. That's what I was going to be. And, and it's when, when, you, when you think of that childhood and you think of the abuse that she took and, and you think of how she looks, the act of will that it took for her to go from that Brooklyn childhood to become inarguably at, in, at a time the biggest star in the history of movies, it's really, really remarkable. When did she first realize that she had this vocal gift, though? The vocal gift came pretty early, and that was one of the reasons I think she disdained it. You know, uh, she was a little girl. She would sing it on on her stoop at her uh, apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, She would go to talent shows and things like that because people would say, oh, my gosh, you know, you've got a terrific voice. But it was almost too easy for her, and 
it was, as I said earlier, uh, a few moments ago, it was one of the reasons why I think she disdained it is, you know, anybody can do this. You know, acting, now that is really, really difficult. And of course, movie stardom is so much grander than vocal stardom. Singers are singers, but even singers aspire to be, as Sinatra and Bean Crosby did, you know, singers aspire to be movie stars. So that was the real aspiration. But very early on, people recognized that she had a vocal gift. Now, there, there is a, a kind of irony in this. When she went to Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn, uh, she was, you know, marginalized in the school chorus uh, to another girl in that chorus who sang far more operatically. And, and she was told by teachers, well, you're never going to make it. Uh, you know, you're just, not, you're just not good enough. And, I, you know, the irony, she even names the person who said that, uh, the, the teacher's name. I mean, the irony, again, of somebody saying Barbara Streisand isn't a good enough singer. <laughs> Whatever you think about Barbara Streisand, to think that she's not a good enough singer, I mean, that is one of the greatest, you know, misjudgments, again, in the history of entertainment. Did the person lose their job after that? I don't think so, no. <laughs> <laughs> he just went on to, to mislead other, other young women who might have been tremendously talented and didn't have her moxie. <laughs> That's right. Moved on to Midwood High. Um, let me ask you, though, early on she gained quite a following in, in nightclubs in New York City and Greenwich Village. Uh, when did she first begin to reach a wider audience? Well, you're right. I mean, she she first entered show business, if you want to call it that, uh, at nightclubs in New York, where, uh, in fact, first at a talent show at a nightclub in New York, where she won every single week. And after winning, you know, successively, crowds began to show up, knowing that she was going to appear for the talent show. Uh, but, you know, the, the that that's a very small sort of stardom. It got bigger uh, through recording. You know, when she recorded, you know, the Barbara Streisand album, that was her her longtime manager, Marty Ehrlichman, said that was really the turning point. It was very difficult for her to get that album. As big a star as she was in the nightclubs of New York, uh, Columbia Records, which is where she had kind of aimed her her ambitions, didn't think she was going to be a, a singing star. Again, another misjudgment in a career of misjudgments. Uh, she parlayed that into television. And she would make television appearances, but the but the the real turning point in terms of of stardom stardom was Funny Girl, right? And that's the story of Fanny Bryce. It's the story of Fanny Bryce, but it's also, you know, the story of Fanny Bryce is the story of a Jewish girl who gets marginalized because she's a Jewish girl who's not conventionally pretty and who somehow manages to parlay that into stardom. Uh, well, guess what? You know, it's the story of Fanny Bryce, but it's also the story of Barbara Streisand. And and the conflation of Barbara Streisand and Fanny Bryce is so powerful that it remains throughout the rest of her career. Every role that Barbara Streisand plays basically is a conflation of Barbara Streisand with a role. You can't say that of every star. I mean, stars bend roles to, to their own personas. That happens all the time. But Barbara Streisand repeatedly plays the, the role of someone who is marginalized and who punches through that marginalization to become, you know, fulfilled. What do you think are her greatest strengths or weaknesses as an actor? You know, I, I like her enormously as an actress. And, and I know that this is, it's not a minority opinion, obviously, because she's a tremendous actress, but it's a minority opinion to say that she is as good an actress as she is a singer. And I would say that. Really? Uh, I think she's every bit as good an actress as she is a singer. And when she's at her best, now people won't say that, because although she didn't make a whole lot of movies, 
uh, her films are of variable quality. I mean, there's no question. I mean, you go from heights, like her performance in Funny Girl. It's not a great movie, but her performance is great. Uh, and The Way We Were, which is both a great performance and, in my estimation, a great movie. And Yentl, which is also a terrific movie and a terrific performance. To movies like What's Up, Doc, which was a huge you know, uh, financial success and it's an absolutely unwatchable and dreadful movie <laughs> or up the sandbox or, uh, all night long. I mean, there are in that, in that filmography, uh, there are almost half the movies are dispensable. Um, but you know, as an actress, I think there's an honesty in her, which is the same thing you feel when you listen to her sing. There's a truthfulness, there's an honesty, there's a pain and you feel it. I mean, the way we were, there was, there was no film. No other actress could have played that role. And I'll tell you one reason why no other actress could have played that role. Because there's a line in that movie where she, Robert Redford has broken up with her and she calls Robert Redford and, and is trying to find out why. What did she do wrong? And she says a line, she says, you know, it's, it's, it's not because I'm, I'm not attractive. You know, I'm attractive sort of, she says. Now, no other actress could have gotten away with saying that line. It's true. She's attractive, sort of. And Robert Redford comes back and says, yeah, you just don't have the style. You don't have it. It's so crushing. It's absolutely devastating. But it's devastating because it's so honest. It's so absolutely honest. And you know that Barbara Streisand, as a person, is feeling what her character is feeling. How often can you say that about a performer? Almost never. Much of the discussion in your book is uh, looking at the way Streisand is a metaphor for how we view Jews, how we view women, how we view, of course, Jewish women. How has she embodied the stereotypes or suffered from them or maybe even benefited from them? Well, she suffered from them and benefited from them. I mean, suffered from them because look it. I mean, uh, you know, as a Jew, I can say this, um, you know, Jews generally men and women are regarded as unattractive, unsexual, loud, uh, pushy, um, uh, money-grubbing, too much. Jews are considered too much of everything. We're sort of oversized, and it always works to our disadvantage to be regarded that way. To be a Jewish woman and be regarded with those same sorts of of characterizations is... I mean, I can only imagine. It's bad enough when you're a man and you're and you're dealt with that way. But men can be pushy and bold and brassy and all of those things. But to be a woman and to be regarded as unsexual and ugly and pushy uh, and bitchy, which is a word that is often, often, uh, you know, placed on Barbara Streisand to the point where Camille Pagli said she invented the idea of bitch. You know, it 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 was it was very hard. To see Barbara Streisand as a woman, I think, for a lot of American popular culture. On the other hand, and you use the word metaphor, and you know I, I use it myself, um, that, that Jewishness became a metaphor for otherness. And it allowed women particularly, but not only women. I mean, she's got a huge gay following. She's got a following among men. It allowed people to plug in to Barbara Streisand. Because you might vicariously feel what uh, a Vivian Lee is is you know uh, doing on screen, but you are Barbara Streisand, and Barbara Streisand is you. You don't have to vicariously feel anything. You feel it because you know that she suffered, 
and she suffered for you. And that's the source, the, the most powerful engine of her popularity is that you know that Barbara Streisand is not that, that different from you as you watch her. You know that her life experiences are not all that different from your life experiences as she was approaching stardom. The way you describe it, it's almost like she's a Christ-like figure. I mean, she suffered she for is. you. I, you know, I, I mean, obviously I thought of that when I was writing <laughs> those lines in the book, and even when I'm saying them now. And it's, there's a certain truth in that. There's a displacement we put on Barbara Streisand. She fought our battles. You know, she suffered for our sins, basically. She had to fight every inch of the way. Not only those people who told her she was ugly, and her mother telling her she was ugly, her stepfather, and every producer, and, you know, every director. Uh, but surmounting that to gain the power to control her own career, both as a recording artist and as a, as a you know, movie star, to produce her own films, to own her own production company to direct her own films at a time when women were not directing movies, to suffer all of that, to have to fight for all of that. Uh, And then, once she'd accomplished those things, to be regarded as a diva, a bitch, who does she think she is? I mean, how many times have we heard that to this day about Barbara Streisand? Who does she think she is? Well, we know who she is, and we love her for it. Hillary Clinton, Adele, Lady Gaga, one can go down the list, One might say that those individuals might not have existed had it not been for Barbara Streisand plowing the way. When you talk about Adele, you can say that Adele is the Barbara Streisand of her generation, a very, very high compliment. When you talk about Barbara Streisand, who was she the Barbara Streisand of for her generation? There was no precedent for Barbara Streisand. There was Barbara Streisand. I do see parallels between her story, though, and Joan Rivers' story. Well, yes and no, but... Joan Rivers was a comedian, and it's always different. Making fun of yourself, which is Joan Rivers' stock and trade, is very different than projecting yourself as a sexual object or a love object. You know, Jews have always made fun of themselves. You know, that harkens way, way back. You know, for that, they kind of channel the rest of, you know, uh, American society. We are objects of ridicule and contempt, but we can do it to ourselves. We can, we can, we are, you know, um, self-derision is a, is a very powerful form. But Barbara Streisand didn't do that. I mean, she could make fun of herself, obviously. But Barbara Streisand was also putting herself forward in an extremely vulnerable way as someone who was worthy of Robert Redford's affections. The most Gentile Gentile in the history of movies, the blonde Goy, she was worthy of his attentions. She not only felt that way, but the movie felt that way, and moviegoers felt that way. And as when the movie ends, you just say, you know, as you watch it, you, you, you say, what an idiot. You gave up this? She seems now to be such an elusive figure, though. I mean, whereas once she might have represented all of us and viewers could see themselves in her, their marginality, their outsiderness. Now she seems like she lives in this silo and she seems so uh, everything about her is so immaculate and curated. Mm. I hate to use that word about a person. I mean, I think it's a word she might even use herself. Yeah, I mean, I think Barbara Streisand felt that she gave us what she owed us, uh, which was her performance. Uh, but now she, she's giving herself what she owed herself, which is, you know, she never really liked performing all that much. And then for 13 years, she didn't perform on stage. She hated 
going on stage and singing after a point. Um, And now it's for her. I want to go back to her early career. You make the point in the book that she did a lot of late night appearances. She was a favorite of Johnny Carson's and she always sort of played the role of the kook and would say these kind of crazy kooky things. Can you give us some particular examples of that? Well, yeah, she she played the role of kook. And now, you know, in in this generation, it's hard for millennials to understand what a kook is. Uh, But it actually was a type. In, in the early days of late night television, there were guests who came on and they just kind of were like silly and, and did outlandish things and said outlandish things. Uh, and Barbara Streisand was one of those. I mean, she would do sort of stream of consciousness. She would say things like, I want to be a fireman. Uh, uh, I don't believe in eating chicken. Uh, I don't, I mean, she just like, like outrageous things. Uh-huh. <laughs> um and and she was very spontaneous, and she dressed in a very kind of outlandish way. Um, I always knew I wanted to be in the theater, but I never made rounds or anything like that. It was very depressing, but I did I did for two days. And uh, when I was during the winter, and it was very cold, I wore a big coat and a big hat because I can't stand the cold. But um, so I walked into offices, and they really thought I was nuts. They like one woman said to me. Uh, you know, when you go make rounds and you meet people, you should wear stockings and high-heeled shoes and so forth. I said, it's freezing out, lady, you know? It's so cold. What difference does it make if, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm an actress and I'm, if I am talented or not talented? Yeah. What difference does it make if I wear tights or not? So, kooky, kooky, you know, people said I was kooky or something. But now they sort of look at me and they uh, say I'm a style setter or something. So she didn't come out with any sort of diva elegance. And in fact, part of the appeal that Barbara Streisand had was the surprise at this kind of young, goofy woman who said all these outrageous things, moving from that to then they would say, well, now, Barbara, why don't you give us a song? And she would sing, and then out of this mouth and out of this kooky individual would come this, these incredible tones. And it was very difficult for audiences to say, well, how do you square this amazing singer with this goofy woman we saw one minute before? But it was part of her stock and trade. She understood what she was doing. When did she decide to sort of forego the kooky affect? When she made it, when she really made it, she realized that that wasn't going to, it wasn't necessary and it wasn't going to advance her career. Uh, so, you know, once, once she was, you know, certainly by the time of Funny Girl, and then by the time of the Funny Girl movie, I mean, that was over with. That was gone. She was now, you know, a star. And she played the role of star. Molly Haskell, the, the film critic, said that part of her appeal is how well she played the role of star and how self-consciously she played the role of star. But again, that would only be appealing if that hadn't been preceded by this notion that she was a person who would never become a star. It's the transformation. You know, as there was it from the kook to the singer to the Brooklyn Mishkite, you know, the skinny, ugly girl to the movie star, those transformations were very powerful affirmations for the audience. 
You mentioned earlier that you think Adele, in a way, is a vocal heiress of hers. I was thinking more along the lines of Amy Winehouse. Yes, but but Amy Winehouse, because she was a train wreck, uh, doesn't connect with us. We can connect with the train wreckedness of her, but then she doesn't triumph over that. And what we what we plug into with Streisand is, despite everything, she makes it bigger than anyone. And that's like Adele to me. I mean, Adele is somebody who, you know, if you just look at Adele, although I think she's a very attractive woman, but if you just look at Adele, I mean, most people in show business would say, well, you know, this is not somebody who's going to make it. And then out of that mouth comes this voice that is incomparable. And then once she's once she's done that the way she treats her fans and the and the way in which she seems to have maintained contact with her origins is very powerful lady gaga does the same thing i mean lady gaga is in some ways very much an heir of barbara streisand the way she refers to her fans uh the way she talks about her past uh, all of those things are very much, I think, uh, uh, kind of legacies of Streisand. It's been pretty cold out, so I guess we have a little pipe clanking happening <laughs> <laughs> in the studio today. Um, a couple of years back, you had an essay that identified Melissa McCarthy, the actress, as the heir of Streisand in terms of performance. How so? Well, Melissa McCarthy, whom I adore and who I think is is you know a genius... Uh, Melissa McCarthy is an actress uh, who would never have been a star, you know, in any other in any other time. Um, even more so than Streisand in some respects, uh, because of her weight, um, but also because of her persona. I mean, she's tough. Um, she's you know uh, somebody who's vulgar. Um, She's somebody who literally throws her weight around. And, and I see her, you know, as an heir of Streisand. Uh, I called her in that essay a revolutionary figure. And I do believe she's a revolutionary figure. Name me another star of that uh, magnitude uh, who has the same qualities that Melissa McCarthy has. There's not one. Melissa McCarthy, is her name is always above the title. Melissa McCarthy opens movies. Melissa McCarthy, I think, relates to audiences in the way that Barbara Streisand related to audiences. Uh, She just has a gift, a gift for fighting her audience's battles, which is the gift that Streisand had. We want to go out with a song, so tell us which Barbara Streisand song is your favorite. Boy, that's tough, because I I like so many of them. Um, I mean, let's close with people. Um, I'll tell you why. Uh, because I love sort of the, the the vocal inflections that she does in people. The way that she'll take, you know, a, a single syllable and turn it into four. Um, we haven't talked a great deal about the, the things that made Barbara Streisand a great singer, but when you listen to people with a very close ear, you'll hear the things that made her a great singer, which is how she treats words differently, how she, you know, kind of downplays... Uh, consonants and upplays vowels and how she, you know, turns sounds that would ordinarily be ugly and makes them beautiful, which is all of a piece with her career. Lovers are very special 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Neil Gabler is the author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. It's out now from Yale University Press. Go get yourself a copy. It's great. Streisand elicits very strong reactions from people. I know some old-school Brooklynites who cannot stand her. What are your feelings about her, listeners? We want to know. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Also, a word of business. Tablet's second print issue is now out. It's gorgeous. It's smart. You should go subscribe. You can do that by texting the word tablet to 66866. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thanks so much for listening.